Hey guys, it's just Dylan today. Unfortunately, Kiki has fallen sick. She is not feeling her most fabulous self. So to make sure we stayed on schedule, I decided to give this a shot solo. If it ends up that I'm incredibly uncomfortable or incredibly awkward and just not funny without Kiki, you won't ever hear this, so it won't matter. But if you are hearing this, it's tolerable. Yeah, so thanks for, for tuning in today, and we'll, we'll see how this goes. My name is Dylan, and this is Yikes, That's Grim. Uh, so I'm just going to be riffing alone today, I guess. Today I'd actually, I had every intention on uh, discussing a different case this week, but while I was going through and getting all the research for the case, I got a notification on my phone that I absolutely could not pass up on. November 28th of this year, so a week and a half ago, two weeks ago, the Toronto Star announced that the 1983 cold case murders of Aaron Gilmore and Suzanne Trice have been solved. And currently, police have a suspect in custody. I'm going to go through what happened in the original case first, and then towards the end, I'll discuss what's happening currently. But right now, I'm just buzzing. It's a a 40-year-old cold case, and it's been solved It's just like, are you kidding me? These families and these loved ones have finally been given justice for the senseless murders of Aaron and Suzanne. So what happened? Since 1983, two cold cases have plagued the city of Toronto, Canada. The rape and murder of two women only kilometers apart. The cases had only been connected in recent-ish years, so in a non-morbid way, let's meet our victims. Suzanne Trice was 45 years old and a mother to four children. She had recently separated from her husband and had moved into a new-to-her home in Toronto from Calgary, Alberta, and the separation from her husband had actually only happened two months prior. Specifically, Suzanne lived in Bickford Park, Toronto, which is between Koreatown and Little Italy. I'm not super familiar with the Toronto area, but if you are, that might help kind of place where we are locationally. Suzanne was a social worker and a dedicated working mother. On August 17th, 1983, a relative had come around to visit Suzanne and noticed the mail was piling up. It was also noticed that Suzanne's front door was open, which was pretty weird. When the relative let themselves in to explore further, they found the house absolutely ransacked. Suzanne's body was found upstairs in the bedroom of her home. Suzanne had been stabbed to death with all stabbings to her chest, and Suzanne had been raped. When Suzanne was examined during the autopsy, the coroner was unfortunately unable to determine Suzanne's time or date of death due to the length of time that had passed and the condition of the body. Aaron Gilmore was 22 years old and lived in an apartment in Yorkville, Toronto. Again, I don't know where this is. I'm not familiar with the Toronto area. I feel like I've heard of Yorkville and it always feels like a little bit more higher end part of Toronto but I don't know for sure please do not quote me on that. Erin was an aspiring clothing designer and had studied fashion at Ryerson. She was young and she was taking the first steps in her career working at a nearby clothing boutique and she was making connections in that world that world that she wanted to be in she wanted to get her feet in she wanted to get her foot in the door she wanted to get her toes wet all all of the sayings. Erin lived alone above a shop in an apartment building. Erin came from a wealthy family and was the daughter of David Gilmore. 
David is apparently the founder of Fiji Water and actually co-owned a number of businesses in Ontario, including a gold mine, a literal gold mine. December 20th, five days before Christmas. It was a snowy day. It's Ontario in the winter. It snows like crazy. This is what you're picturing sometimes when you picture Canada in the winter. This is what you're picturing. So it's snowing. It's almost Christmas time. Erin had spent the day at her mom's house and then had returned to the boutique Robin Snits to close down for the evening at around 9 p.m. 35 minutes after the shop was closed, her friend who would be accompanying her to a Christmas party arrived at her apartment and found the door ajar. Does this start to ring a bell? On December 20th, 1983, Erin's deceased body was found inside her apartment. Aaron had been raped and stabbed repeatedly in the chest. This 35-minute window was all that the mystery attacker had needed to rape and murder Aaron Gilmore in her home. I will mention as well, and this isn't me shitting on anybody, but it's really surprising to me how much more information there was on Aaron's murder than Susan's. Aaron's family was wealthy and were able to put a huge reward for information per murder up. A lot of the time, Suzanne is an afterthought in the news articles I read. Erin was young and wealthy, just starting her life, whereas Susan was older. She was a mother of four and recently divorced. I know we mentioned it in my last case on uh, Harold Shipman a couple weeks ago about some people being less dead, and this is a pretty common uh, concept in any sort of murder investigation or anything to do with crime. You've got these instances of the less dead or the less alive because of their status or whatever. But I was really surprised to see how one victim was outshining the other so frequently in the news articles around this story. Again, I'm not trying to start shit and I'm not saying that Aaron Gilmore's family shouldn't have used the resources available to them, but it just made my heart go out to Susan and Tice's family a little bit extra. In 2000, police connected the two cases of Aaron and Susan. After new advances in DNA testing were able to link the attacker in each case from samples taken from the scene. Susan and Aaron had lived less than three kilometers away from each other, and there was four months between their senseless attacks and murders. This was a major break in both cold cases. They'd already been sitting for 17 years, so this was movement, this was huge, and hope was renewed for the families. But, unfortunately, the police had no suspects. The connection of these two cases came as a huge surprise to police at the time because the women didn't look alike. They didn't live in the same areas of Toronto, even if they were geographically close. They were in totally different subsections of Toronto. And they were at different stages of their lives. But the methods used in the attacks were the same, both victims having been raped and viciously stabbed to death. So the connection was there. In 2008, eight years later, a $50,000 reward was announced to renew public interest in the case and hopefully stir up new leads and hopefully put a name to this mystery man. They'd had DNA collected from the scene of the presumed attacker, but at the time, police would have to match every suspect's DNA with the collected sample. Unfortunately, no one was a match for the collected sample, resulting in needing a new avenue to explore, resulting in a fruitless endeavor. That is, at the time. In 2019, jumping forward a little bit, Toronto police teamed up with the U.S.-based lab Othram Inc. 
to try and produce a viable DNA profile from the samples that had been collected at the crime scenes in 1983. So this is almost 40 years later. This was, however, a daunting task as the mystery man's genetic materials were contaminated. They degraded over the years and it was mixed with the genetic material of his victims. Additionally, the protocols surrounding collecting DNA and collecting evidence were obviously different in 1983 than they are in the 2000s, specifically almost 2020. Just the practices were different. The other concern here was that DNA sequencing is destructive to the sample. In the process of building a profile, the genetic material sample can be destroyed. So because of this, a profile is only built if they know they can do it, if they're confident that they will be able to provide a profile and destroying the sample isn't too great a stake to the investigation. Typically now what's happening in this, these situations is that a genetic profile is created and compared to genetic information on ancestry sites, such as Ancestry or 23andMe, from this, investigators are now able to narrow down the information and narrow down a suspect list and rule people out. It can create a situation where you've got the family. You've got the family lineage of the, the mystery man that you've been looking for. For this specific case, genetic information was used to narrow down and narrow in on Joseph Sutherland. Dun, dun, dun! A tool called Investigate Genetic Genealogy was used in this investigation. This tool cross-checks references from websites that have voluntary information uploaded. So when you provide one of these genetic testing sites your information, you're consenting to having your genetic profile and your genetic information accessible. Sorry, I hope you can't hear my dog barking. I'm gonna check on him. Two seconds. So this is wild. They have a name suddenly. Joseph Sutherland. Joseph had never actually been a suspect or a person of interest in either murder case, but he had lived in the Toronto area during the time of the murders. If not for the advancements in technology and the willingness for police forces and investigators to use information from these ancestry sites, Joseph would likely have never been identified. He was a complete mystery. He was a complete at a left field player. So currently, what's broken in the news now and how was this cold case actually solved? Toronto Police Chief James Raymer said on November 28th that their suspect, Joseph George Sutherland, a 61-year-old man from, oh gosh, Moosonee, Ontario? Moosonee? Moosonee. Probably Moosonee. Their suspect, Joseph George Sutherland, a 61-year-old man from Moosonee, Ontario, had been arrested on November 25th, so three days, pardon me, four days prior to this story breaking. Joseph George Sutherland had been charged with two counts of first-degree murder in the deaths of Aaron Gilmore and Suzanne Tice. Currently, little is actually known about Joseph Sutherland and how he spent his last 40 years. It is also not yet known if Sutherland had any connection to either Suzanne or Aaron. It's been confirmed, however, that Joseph does have family, but it is not yet known if he had a wife and children, an opportunity specifically that he'd taken away from Aaron Gilmore. 
it's in cases like this where you have to remember that not only did this person got away with it, but they did get away with it for almost 40 years. This man got to live his life where Aaron and Susan didn't. He got to go outside and go on vacation, be with his friends and his family. And this opportunity was not allowed to Aaron and Suzanne at his hand. There's a quote from Sean McEwen, who's Aaron Gilmore's brother. It's, quote, this is a day that I and we have been waiting for for almost an entire lifetime. Sean McEwen said this of the arrest. For 39 years, Sean's sister's murderer has been a ghost. Because of how long it's been since Aaron's murder, her family had started to lose hope that an arrest would ever actually be made in the case. Now that Joseph has been arrested, according to Detective Sergeant Stephen Smith, the Toronto police will be looking at possible other connections to other offenses throughout Ontario that Joseph might be connected to as well. At this time, however, no connections have been made, but we'll watch the space for updates on that. Detective Sergeant Smith did say, however, that Joseph Sutherland might be considered a person of interest in other unsolved cases of sexual violence in the province of Ontario, except those that he's already been ruled out from due to DNA evidence. So there is also the potential that not only we'd solve this 40-year-old cold case, but the potential to close other cold cases and give justice to other families and loved ones of victims. Following his arrest, Joseph Sutherland is now scheduled to appear in court on December 9th, which was three days ago. Having this cold case double murder solved does, of course, bring back the memories and the trauma for the family and friends of Aaron and Susan, as was outlined by Aaron's brother, Sean, during his statement. And that's something that I want to leave everybody with today. Although it's absolutely good news that this man has finally been caught, arrested, and charged, the family now has to fight for justice again. Unfortunately, Aaron's mother passed away two years ago in 2020, which means she died before the murder of her only daughter was solved. The murder was something that she found exceptionally difficult to talk about, but it would have given her great relief and some peace that Aaron's murderer is finally being held accountable and punished for his crimes. With this in mind, though, Joseph has been a free man for the last 40 years since the double murder. Fuck, it really just grinds my gears that someone who's committed a crime and taken the life of another person away, they what? They just get to go and live their life? They get to go to Tim Hortons for a coffee and they get to go to the beach and skip rocks. They get to do all those things. That's just surrounding living a normal life. Joseph is in his 60s now and he's been given the chance to live. Again, a chance that he took away from Aaron and Susan. Again, Toronto police have confirmed that they are trying to determine if Joseph Sutherland can be connected to any other cold cases in the province of Ontario and have since released his mugshot to aid in those endeavors. So on the Instagram page, when this, uh, this episode comes out, I will post Joseph Sutherland's mugshot and a couple photos of him. Lastly today, as this is a solo episode, so this is probably going to be pretty short, I just want to say that my heart goes out to the victims here. Again, I cannot stress enough that Joseph was not was not a suspect. He he was completely removed from the situation. Police had no idea who he was. They had no idea he had any sort of connection here. He got away scot-free. And on November 25th, 
justice won and they're going to win. Hopefully the court case is in the favor of the families and I will try to watch the space to provide an update on that for you guys to see what comes of the trial and if Joseph is punished or sentenced. I'll try and keep you you guys updated on the space, make sure that everybody knows what's going on with Aaron Gilmore and Suzanne Tice's case and what happens with the conviction surrounding Joseph Sutherland. Otherwise, you guys, please feel free to reach out to us on either our Gmail at yikesthatsgrim at gmail.com, on any of the socials at yikesthatsgrim, or on Facebook at yikesthatsgrim podcast. Oh, solo episodes are so weird, so I'm just going to cut this short and go play with my dog. Um, Bye, guys. Stay safe, and thanks for listening. Bye.